This program is made possible by members and donors to the show. In supporting the work we do, two bucks a month gets you an ad-free version of every episode, while full membership gets you that, plus members-only bonus episodes with extra clips and commentary. Sign up at patreon.com slash bestofleft, or visit the Contribute tab at bestofleft.com. Now, welcome to this episode of the award-winning Best of the Left podcast, in which we shall learn about the story of Amazon's enormous growth, the history of how our antitrust laws were neutered, and how the former is making us rethink the latter. Clips today come from Bernie Sanders' YouTube channel, Ear to the Pavement, Why Is This Happening with Chris Hayes, Pitchfork Economics, Planet Money, The Majority Report, and Start Making Sense. When Jeff Bezos founded Amazon in 1995, he was able to grow this company in ways that would have once drawn antitrust intervention. One of the tactics that he used was to sell goods at a loss in order to capsize smaller competitors that didn't have the same financial backing. In Amazon's first six years in business, it lost $3 billion selling books at a loss. The tactic worked. Bookstores closed in droves. And now Amazon controls half of all book sales and more than 70% of all ebook sales. Similarly, when Zappos came along, the online shoe retailer, they started to emerge in the mid-2000s as a really popular competitor. Well, Amazon responded by selling shoes at a loss until Zappos, a smaller company without the backing of Wall Street, started bleeding red ink, and eventually they had to agree to a merger. Well, today, Zappos is owned by Amazon. The fact that a single company dominates online commerce is a story about the failure of antitrust policy to protect competition. Just how powerful is Amazon? It's now capturing one of every $2 that Americans spend online. To think of Amazon simply as a retailer is to really misjudge the scope of what Jeff Bezos has set out to do. I don't just mean that Amazon does a lot of things besides sell stuff. It produces television shows and movies. It publishes books. It underwrites loans. It manages the data of U.S. intelligence agencies. It operates the world's largest streaming video game platform. And it's now manufacturing thousands of different products itself, from batteries to blouses. What I mean is that Amazon's ambition is much bigger than merely dominating any of these markets. Its goal is to replace them. Amazon has set out to be the infrastructure that commerce runs on, to be the platform that all sellers must go through to reach buyers. Already, more than half of online shoppers are bypassing search engines and starting their shopping search directly on Amazon. The result of this is that every competing business, from Main Street retailers to big global brands, increasingly they have little choice but to join Amazon's marketplace as sellers. Amazon says its platform is a place where entrepreneurs can pursue their dreams. But in reality, this relationship is often predatory. Studies have found that Amazon watches what sellers are doing and then often starts selling their most popular items itself. Small manufacturers can wake up one day and suddenly find that Amazon has made a knockoff of their best-selling product and then given it the top spot in its search results. In other words, Amazon's competitors now depend on Amazon to reach customers, and Amazon in turn is exploiting that dependence to undermine them as competitors. What all of this adds up to is just an incredible machine for concentrating wealth. By owning the pipelines, Amazon can privilege its own products on those pipelines and for the goods it doesn't want to sell, it can let other companies provide those items while levying a kind of tax on their revenue through the fees that it charges them. In the end, 
Amazon makes money on every transaction and it gets to set the rules. What happens when you concentrate this much power? Well, one effect we're seeing is that communities across the country are seeing their economic base pulled out from under them. The number of local independent retailers has fallen by over 85,000 over the last 10 years. We've lost around 35,000 small manufacturers. Meanwhile, those that are still in business say that as Amazon squeezes them, they're no longer able to invest as much in their companies and in developing new products and growing what they're doing. In the end of all of this, Amazon is actually destroying more jobs than it's creating. But it's not only our economic well-being that's at risk, it's also our freedom. When Franklin Roosevelt fought monopolies, he used the word dictatorship. Indeed, Amazon has the power to decide such crucial questions as which books will succeed or fail, which firms will survive, which communities will get by, and which will be simply left behind. In addition to demanding better wages for its workers, we need to confront Amazon's power directly. Can you talk about how Amazon's corporate strategy has evolved over time and how the kinds of subsidies and tax exemptions Amazon has sought have changed as a result of that shift. Sure. So uh, for those people that have been watching Amazon or patronizing Amazon for a long time, you may remember that they started out both with a small product list, you know, books, and then eventually electronics and clothing and all the things they sell today. But they also um, didn't have rapid delivery, right? They, they traded themselves, especially on discounts and price power, uh, you know, elasticity, so to speak, as the best bargain uh, hunter, the, their comparative advantage was price, and to, one of the ways they did that was to avoid the collection of sales tax, and they did that by avoiding what's called nexus or the ability of a state to compel a company to collect sales tax. Amazon is fighting on another front, the tax front. If you've wondered why books or other products on Amazon tend to be cheaper than at your local store, one reason is the absence of state sales tax. In other words, Amazon has had a competitive advantage. Big retailers, including Walmart, are lobbying hard to force their online rival Amazon to collect state sales taxes. Amazon has been fighting the efforts. So Amazon set up a very small number of warehouses in its early years, mostly in states that didn't have sales taxes like Delaware and New Hampshire and Oregon, places like that, and then shipped into other states from those warehouses so they could avoid sales taxes altogether and use that resulting price advantage as a way to gain market share. But then their prime business model evolved when they, after they launched the prime program, obviously part of the advantage of the prime program was to you're paying for two day delivery or one day delivery. And now even in many markets, same day delivery. You're savvy, right? I'm savvy. I order on Amazon. Convenient. I don't take it too hard, but you might be missing out. Amazon has taken prompt delivery to a whole new level. It's called Amazon Same Day Delivery. And yeah. And when that happened, Amazon couldn't just get away with having a handful of warehouses uh, shipping into other states. They had to have warehouses, or they, they call them fulfillment centers or sortation centers, near every major market with lots of prime households. And uh, the number of prime households is enormous. They won't reveal the total U.S. number, but it's probably more than half of U.S. households are prime members now. So that meant they had to have gobs of warehouses, hundreds of warehouses, uh, you know, located close enough to do rapid delivery to big chunks of 
uh, prime household members, which is to say, especially people living in more affluent zip codes. Uh, and, and by 2010, 2011, 2012, they were kind of playing chicken with some states on this nexus thing. They were actually operating warehouses in some states and still not collecting sales taxes. Texas was the most outrageous example where Texas came after them for more than $260 million in uncollected sales taxes because they had been uh, selling from warehouses there. Uh, as a settlement, Amazon realized they could now get incentives for creating jobs as they built out these warehouses, and they could leverage the lure of creating jobs. And I'm putting air quotes on the word creating jobs here by coming to terms and settling these past tax claims with various states. South Carolina was another state too, wherein they agreed to not pay a big chunk of taxes in arrears, you know, for back years, but to start collecting in the future, but also build a warehouse in the state, clearly have Nexus, clearly start collecting sales tax, but get the tax breaks. Amazon.com announced today that it intends to open a new fulfillment center in Spartanburg County, South Carolina. The facility will end up employing hundreds of new full-time jobs and could include... Amazon announced on Wednesday that it will be creating 1,500 full-time jobs at its first Utah fulfillment center in Salt Lake City. Right now at six, about a thousand jobs are heading to our city. Amazon is breaking ground on a new warehouse in North Las Vegas. And chapter 30. Online retailer Amazon announcing it now plans to build two fulfillment centers in Florida. Amazon says between the two, they will bring more than 1,000 jobs to the area. Amazon is investing $150 million in a warehouse just south of Grand Rapids that will create up to 1,000 jobs. And so by 2012, they were getting about two dozen of these tax incentive deals a year, uh, mostly for their warehouses. Also, they also get big tax break deals for their data centers. They are the biggest cloud computing company in the world. Um, but, and they're still averaging, you know, last year alone, they got 23 more incentive deals. Again, most of them for these warehouses. So just to clarify, you're saying that they cut deals with states where they owed this backlog of sales taxes by saying, what we'll do is we'll build a warehouse in your state. And you're saying that is what they kind of use to try to get out of all these back sales taxes that states were trying to get them to pay? Yeah, the the political calculus was, you know, Governor Smith gets to announce that Amazon is going to build a big warehouse and employ, you know, 500 or 1,000 people. And buried in the fine print, they're going to forget about that big tax claim from past years and give them some incentives to create jobs, unquote. A recent Supreme Court decision ruled that states may now collect tax on goods purchased from out-of-state sellers, even if the seller does not have a physical presence in the state. But the ruling comes too late for Amazon, which was already collecting sales tax everywhere by the time it was finally handed down this past June. An important exception are the hundreds of thousands of third-party sellers doing business on Amazon's platform. These sellers still do not collect sales tax. It's a hometown success story. We're under the Carolina moon. We're a gift boutique in Easley, South Carolina. A local business that in 12 years has gone worldwide. They sell as much online as they do in their store. About half of the things Amazon sells are third-party sales. You see that fulfilled by so-and-so when you make the order. That is, they're not directly sold by Amazon. They're coming from companies that use the platform of Amazon to sell through it. And Amazon is still not collecting sales taxes on most of those third-party sales, and that's about half of what Amazon sells. So it's hard to get 
rock solid figures on this. I've been trying for this morning uh, to remind myself, but uh, the National Governors Association says that the 45 states that have sales taxes estimate they could be collecting as much as $26 billion a year if all e-commerce paid its fair sales taxes. So if half of Amaz- half of that is Amazon and, and Amazon's collecting half, that's still maybe seven, eight uh, billion dollars a year to gain yet if Amazon uh, fully were to comply. If we could advertise that nobody had to pay sales tax with us, it would definitely increase our business. It's why the State Department of Revenue says Amazon.com enjoys an unfair competitive advantage over other businesses. In a legal action filed late last week, officials at Amazon is intentionally exempting sales tax collection from third-party vendors, costing the state millions of dollars each year. Right now, only five states collect sales tax on marketplace sales. Minnesota, New Jersey, Oklahoma, Pennsylvania, and Washington State. Notably absent from this list are New York and Virginia, states where Amazon plans to locate its second headquarters. Some experts, like Carl Davis of the Institute on Taxation and Economic Policy, predict that states will soon begin to enact legislation requiring tax collection on marketplace sales. In the meantime, as Greg Leroy already pointed out, the end of a sales tax holiday for Amazon has simply redirected the company to seek lavish economic development subsidies instead. Ironically, Amazon's pivot away from sales tax evasion has probably only helped it build goodwill with lawmakers who are in a position to offer these new subsidies. So can you briefly talk just a little bit about what kinds of subsidies Amazon gets? Sure. So again, the big spike really starts in 2012. In fact, Amazon creates its own tax break department in that year. They hire a guy named Michael Grella, who's an uh, expert in tax incentives. He's worked at a couple of big accounting firms uh, before that, specializing in uh, negotiating for tax incentives for his clients. Um, So, you know, there's three kinds of taxes that companies pay, just like people pay, right? There's property taxes, sales taxes, and income taxes. And many of the packages that Amazon has gotten include two or three of those three kinds of taxes, depending on the the way the taxes work in that state. But so, for example, it's very common for a new facility to get a property tax abatement, which is to say an exemption for 10 years. After months of heavy construction and battles over tax breaks, the online giant Amazon showed off its Spartanburg County Fulfillment Center this morning. Spartanburg County Councilman David Britt worked closely with the company to draft the local incentives package, which included road improvements and a 30-year property tax break. They may pay zero or very little in property taxes for many, many years. When the facility is built, the state may say, okay, you're going to buy a lot of materials, building materials and machinery and equipment to equip that facility, but we will not charge you sales tax on all that material. And obviously, if you're spending you know, millions of dollars, that those sales taxes would add up too. And then many states say, okay, we have a program that says if you invest X million dollars or you hire X hundred people, we give you a dollar for dollar reduction in your income tax liability to our state for those investments or for those hirings. And in that way, these corporate income tax credits often either greatly reduce or even eliminate Amazon's income tax liability completely. I mean, obviously, income tax returns are not disclosed, so we can't say exactly what the numbers are. In some cases, we can estimate, we can ballpark, but but it's all three kinds of taxes. And then, you know, looking at some of the big ones we've we've seen over the years, there's you know there's lots of eight figure deals now. 
We've got more than 140 of them cataloged on our website. And I think one of the things you just mentioned is the, the infrastructure part. I think people don't realize the degree to which actually, from a revenue standpoint, my understanding is Amazon is primarily a web server back-end cloud company. Isn't that right? Yeah, they make most of their profit from Amazon Web Services. And they control about a third of the world's cloud computing capacity. You know, they provide... Think about that. Yeah. A third of the world's, a third of the world's cloud computing capacity. Yeah, they manage data for, you know, all kinds of companies, Netflix, Comcast. They manage the data of, of the CIA. Really? Yeah. They power a lot of the Internet um, and they have big contracts uh, to manage, yeah, intelligence agencies data. So they've got big government contracts and that is a, a space where there's no rival to them. Yeah, I mean, there are these companies like Oracle, you know, that have been in that space before, but there's this thing that's coming down now. It's called the Jedi contract. Um, and Amazon, I know it's ridiculous. I don't know who names these things, but, um, you know, Amazon seems to have an inside track because the way the RFP was written. Wait, what's the Jedi contract for whom? Oh, I'm sorry. It's for the Defense Department. So Amazon's been doing CIA's data service. And now there's this huge Defense Department contract to manage their data. Um, it's the, a much bigger. For all of the Pentagon? Yeah. To manage all the Pentagon's data. Mm -hmm. That's the contract. Yeah. It's huge. It's a huge contract. And, you know, normally you would have. I don't think I'm going to bid on that one. <laughs> I don't think I'm, I don't think I'm going to get that one. <laughs> normally you'd get a bunch of providers, you know, you'd, you'd mitigate the possibility of like one going down by sure, using multiple right. companies. But the way this RFP is written, it's going to be one company. And it, it practically says, you know, it should have like a smiley face arrow <laughs> logo, you know, in order to bid. I mean, that's how much it was written. The CEO's last name must rhyme with Dezos. Yeah. So there's a reason that they're moving to Washington and that Jeff Bezos just bought the biggest house in Washington, D.C. So because you think that essentially the fix is in for that RFP, for that for that big Jedi contract for, to manage all the Pentagon's data. Yeah, I mean, they really want to envelop government. They want to be, you know, the interface for all of government purchasing. They're doing this at the local level. So they're taking over purchasing for local school districts, cities, counties. And How so? States. What do you mean? In 2017, they quietly negotiated this national contract to supply local governments with office supplies, classroom supplies, all the sort of goods that local governments buy. And about 1,500 jurisdictions nationally have signed on to this contract. Um, we did a public information request and pulled all the documents, and it is so sorted. I couldn't believe it. I mean, the RFP was completely designed for Amazon. No other company even came. There are only five companies bid on it, and four of them got very low scores. I mean, usually if you're a government... You put out an RFP, you go into a contract. One of the things that you're doing is you're getting a fixed price. You're saying, yep. I'm going to offer you all my, my purchasing for five years. You're going to give me a, a good deal right. on the stuff I buy. This has no fixed pricing. It's dynamic pricing. Meaning Wait, the contract doesn't have fixed pricing. No. So you, have a, you sign a contract and they retain all dynamic pricing power. Yes. So what do you get? You get the interface. You get this, the ease of use. You get the ease of use. You get the sort of way that Amazon reports out the data on what your people are purchasing. But it really is a scandal. And I think part of what's happened is that cities have signed on to this without necessarily looking at it. You know, a lot of them have just sort of blindly gone along. Oh, it's Amazon. I mean, it has all the sort of name brand, warm and fuzzy feeling that people have about Amazon. And, 
you know, they have a very good sales pitch about how this dynamic pricing and because they're Amazon, they're going to save you money. So a lot of people buy into that, but it isn't true. We actually did a pricing analysis as part of it and, and found that they are charging more. So, you, I mean, they sell everything, every basically every consumer good you could buy on Amazon. Then they're also controlling a third of the world's cloud computing. They're contracting with the government to sort of provide digital infrastructure. They're like, they got 1,500 jurisdictions that are buying their like scotch tape and clipboards. What is the end game here? You, I mean, your description like is kind of chilling my blood a little bit about Jeff Bezos. Like, what is the end game here? There's so many things they're in. I mean, they, they own the largest uh, streaming game service, Twitch. They're manufacturing all of these products. They just bought a big online pharmacy. They're making these big moves into healthcare. They they're, own Whole Foods. They own Whole Foods. They plan to unroll about 3,000 Amazon Go stores, the little grocery convenience stores. They want to build 3,000 of those in the next few years. They're experimenting with other kinds of physical retail. They're uh, dabbling in different kinds of financial products. They're making cable news hosts now. (laughs) (laughs) Really handsome, well-spoken and cheap. (laughs) Get them off the shelf. Voiced by Alexa. Yeah, exactly. (laughs) Bezos thinks big. He's not afraid of big markets. And they operate by being really experimental. And then once they figure out something works, they scale in a huge way. And I think because they have this structural power, because they are this platform and their amount of data that they have gathered about every corner of the economy and the way that they're able to mine that data for patterns and information they have this built-in advantage whenever they move into a right. new sector. And they, as you've noted, they can also you know, use all of the, the financial resources to go in at a loss. And so there's, there's sort of no end to, to what they think they can do. I think Bezos really thinks about the world from a Wall Street point of view. You know, he comes from Wall Street. You know, I don't even think he thinks about any of these things like, oh, I want to be the biggest manufacturer of clothing, although he's on his way to to doing that. I don't think he really it's not about clothing or books or streaming video or anything else. I think he sees the world as streams of cash. And his goal is to be able to siphon off from as many of those streams as he can. Today's episode is sponsored by Madison Reed, which can help you take the coloring of your hair to the next level. For decades, women have had two options for coloring their hair, outdated at-home color or the time and expense of a salon, but now you can get gorgeous professional hair color delivered to your door for less than 25 bucks. Self-image is a genuinely important thing, so it is no surprise that many Madison Reed clients have commented how their new hair color has improved their lives. Madison Reed delivers gray, covering, game-changing color that you can do at home and look as if you just came from the salon. Women love the results, gorgeous, shiny, multi-dimensional, healthy-looking hair. And what makes Madison Reed color unique is that it's crafted by master colorists who blend nuances of light, dark, cool, and warm to create over 45 gorgeous, multi-tonal shades. Find your perfect shade at madison-reed.com. Best of the left listeners get 10% off plus free shipping on their first color kit with the code LEFT. That's madison-reed.com and use the code LEFT. So it's really astounding 
uh, how concentrated the labor market has become and how that has contributed to declining wages. And so to learn a little more about the impact of monopsonies, we turn to your friend, Jared Bernstein. Yes, Jared uh, is an economist and, among other things, was Vice President Biden's chief economic advisor uh, and is an expert on these matters. Jared, Nick. Hey, baby. How are things in Washington, D.C., USA? Is there anything new out there? <laughs> the swamp has yet to be drained. <laughs> It's getting swampier, in fact. <laughs> but he promised. <laughs> so let's uh, start out by talking about this economic term, monopsony, that has Ooh, all of a right? sudden sort of c- crashed into the public consciousness, or at least is beginning to. It's a word that you didn't hear for a long time, and now every time I open a newspaper or read anything about economics, it's something that's come up. So. Can you talk to us about what monopsony is and why we should care about it? Sure. Uh, Well, listeners may be familiar with the idea of monopoly, which is when one seller controls the market. A monopsony is when uh, one buyer controls the market, specifically the market for labor. So simply put, it means an employer that has uh, a great deal of power uh, in setting the wages and labor standards of the workers because it, it, they're, they're the only employer or maybe one of a few employers. Uh, at least in a theoretical sense, that's what a monopsony is. In the real world, what it means, and the reason it's become uh, more uh, well-known is because the problem that we're talking about has grown. In the real world, what it means is that in some key industries, It's not that there's one employer, but there's just a few employers, and their concentration within the industry is so large that they can control the terms of hiring and labor standards and wage rates, and it's one of the reasons why we've been having uh, difficulty on the wage side. I think the simple way to say it, because I think sometimes you hear the word monopsony, you just sort of get scared, is employer power. Yeah, It means a level of employer power to set standards and wages in, in key labor markets that uh, is going to typically redound not to the benefit of workers. And to be clear, while he didn't use the word, this is a concept that goes all the way back to Adam Smith. Yes, it's actually interesting how many of these concepts go back to Adam Smith, who has been completely misrepresented as somehow embracing what we now call sort of neoclassical or excessive market economics. And Adam Smith was the one who said, I'm paraphrasing, that when employers get together, they're going to collude and conspire to screw workers in some way or another. Yes. And so, yeah, he, he really, he, power, interestingly, was uh, deeply embedded in his model and my model and your model. And monopsony is one of the ways that's playing out in today's economy. Yeah, I was always struck by this massive blind spot that so many economists seem to have about the dynamics of labor markets, which is this this idea that people were paid what they deserve or what they're worth. Nothing could be farther from the truth. People get paid what they can negotiate, <laughs> you know, what they have the power to negotiate. And 
there are a few people in the economy that have lots of power and are therefore paid a lot. Uh, but most people have no power and therefore are not paid very much. And this is why all these claims that, you know, like increasing profits will lead to higher wages is just such bunk. I mean, there's no reason in the world why more profits for me will turn into wages for you. Yeah, I mean, I, I think that's right. And it's actually the what you're talking about is, is this assumption that um, workers are going to get paid their marginal contribution to the firm's output. And obviously, you know, employers, you've been an employer. That is not true. That's not how it works. That is not how it works. And it's characteristic of the kinds of assumptions that have gotten economics in all kinds of trouble. You know, as you were talking, I was reminded of the moment when Greenspan, uh, in testimony after the financial crisis, essentially said to the members of Congress who were questioning him, you know, my model was wrong uh, because I assumed, this is Greenspan talking, I assumed that um, financial institutions would self-regulate to protect themselves from uh, the kinds of problems that they got themselves in. Well, again, Adam Smith was very clear that that isn't the way it works. No. So a set of assumptions kind of arose over the years. And, you know, we can look at those from the perspective of economic history, economics becoming very mathematical, or probably more germanely, we can look at them in terms of who do they serve in this power structure. And that's that's the way I look at it. And I, I really don't want to lose the thread because it's consistent with what we've been talking about so far. It is commonly misunderstood. The assumptions in economics are benign or they're, they're mathematical or they sort of come out of a model that may or may not be right. In fact, they come out of a model that isn't right, A. But B, these are very much politically motivated assumptions that serve one class over another, and it's that class that's been winning for a long time. Ladies and gentlemen, it is my privilege tonight, my very great privilege, to introduce one of the great constitutionalists of our day, the Honorable Robert Bork. This is from a speech a judge named Robert Bork gave in 1987. Uh, thank you, Ken. I was a Bork's signature look was this sort of shaggy 19th century style beard. And before we started working on these shows about antitrust, the thing that I knew about Robert Bork was that he was nominated to the Supreme Court and rejected because Democratic senators did not like his long history of very conservative opinions on subjects like abortion and civil rights. And when he died in 2012, that is the subject that his obituaries were all about. But there is something else about Bork that you don't hear as much about. Uh, these reflections are prompted by the history of antitrust law. When I first started at Yale, I really thought the situation of the law was hopeless. Robert Bork completely transformed the way antitrust law works in this country. He changed the very definition of what's legal and illegal for big companies to do. I mean, he changed it so much, it is shocking, it is still the same law. And it seems like even Bork was surprised by the impact he had. The fact is, I simply underestimated the power of ideas. Now, that's a very natural error for a professor. If you sit in enough faculty meetings, you are very likely to underestimate the power of thought. Hello and welcome to Planet Money. I'm Jacob Goldstein. And I'm Kenny Malone. 
Today on the show, how Robert Bork won the fight over the very meaning of competition in America and how he paved the way for some of the biggest, most powerful companies we've ever seen. So let's talk about Bork. I mean, did you know him? Did you work with him? Oh, sure. I knew him well. This is Eleanor Fox. She's a professor at NYU. Says her political views are significantly more liberal than Robert Bork's opposite end of the spectrum. What was he like? Oh, lovely man. Very, very nice. Very cordial. Very witty. Eleanor Fox started practicing law in 1962, right around the time Robert Bork started teaching at Yale. And you you found your way to antitrust, right? You became an antitrust... Yeah, it found me. (laughs) Uh, It found me. Luckily, it found me. Uh, Why luckily? Oh, because I love it. (laughs) Why why do you love antitrust? Well, I loved um, David against Goliath. In David against Goliath, which side did you root for? Oh, David. (laughs) (laughs) David and Goliath. So take the classic example from the first episode of this series. Goliath was Standard Oil, the giant oil company controlled by one of the richest men in the world. David was the little startup refiners that Standard Oil bought or forced out of business in order to gain control of 90% of the refining business. We just did a whole show on that. What was the antitrust worldview when you started practicing in the 1960s? It was for the little guy without power. It was the suspicion that when big firms did anything that made life tough for competitors, um, that was probably illegal. And you can really see this in this moment, the 1960s. The Supreme Court kept pushing antitrust further and further, case by case. There was a case in 1962, Brown Shoe Company versus the United States. Can a shoe company buy up a chain of shoe stores? Supreme Court was like, no, that shoe company would just kick the other shoe brands out of those chain stores. No, can't do it. 1966, United States versus Vons Grocery. Can two local grocery store chains merge in Los Angeles? I don't know. Merger? Okay, but after the merger, they'd only have seven and a half percent of the local market. Supreme Court was like, no. No, you can't do it. It would be too hard on mom and pop shops. Okay, 1967, Utah Pie versus Continental Baking. Can big national frozen pie companies sell really cheap pies in Utah and make business tough for a local pie company? No way. Okay, but what if the local pie company controls most of the local market and keeps making a profit through most of the price war? Still no. Nope. So in case after case, the court kept ruling for the little guy, kept ruling for Team David and expanding the definition of what was illegal, what was bad for competition. So there was a kind of joke at the time that the Supreme Court was like the little boy who um, thought he knew how to spell banana but didn't know when to stop. But what I want to say... Wait, 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 wait. wait. Tell me more about <laughs> yeah. that joke. So the, the, the little boy who was trying to spell banana okay. but didn't know where to stop. So we kept going, B-A-N-A-N-A-N-A-N-A. Kenny, I had to get her to explain this to me like three times, but finally I got it, right? She was saying that it was appropriate for the Supreme Court to find for David, to find for small businesses in some cases, in a lot of cases. That's the banana, B-A-N-A-N-A. But the court didn't stop there. It kept intervening in cases when it probably should have just left the market alone. That's the N-A-N-A-N-A-N-A. And to be clear, for Eleanor Fox, the basic antitrust worldview at the time was correct. It was just that the court went too far in a few cases. But Robert Bork did not see it that way at all. He had gone to law school at the University of Chicago, where he was 
like profoundly influenced by this group of economists and lawyers who are arguing in a very broad way that in general, the government was way too involved in the free market. When Bork applied this Chicago school logic to antitrust, he didn't see just a few weird Supreme Court decisions. Instead, he saw an entire worldview built on a fundamental misunderstanding of what competition meant and what the point of antitrust was supposed to be. So he set out to destroy that worldview, to just reduce it to rubble and build a whole new worldview in its place. He started writing and arguing. And in 1978, he published what was arguably the most important work on antitrust since Ida Tarbell took on John D. Rockefeller and Standard Oil. It was a book called The Antitrust Paradox. Do you remember when that book came out? Yes. Was it a big deal? Yes. Did you see people reading it? Like, was it a, <laughs> did it have a moment? Would you be on the subway? Like and Pokemon. You'd see I was sure you were going to say the subway. <laughs> no, I never saw anybody in the subway reading it. Okay, so no one in the subway reading it, but were people like, hey, did you read The Antitrust Paradox? Oh, no, you were assumed to have read The Antitrust <laughs> Paradox. Jacob and I both have copies of this book. We both read it. And it's an important book that we're going to talk about for a little yeah, bit. Yeah, the here. book is like really the center of this show. Because in this book, Bork goes through those cases from the 1960s and many, many more cases and essentially says, if you look at these, you can see clearly antitrust policy has gone way too far. So, for example, the Brown Shoe Company decision. If a shoe company wants to buy a shoe store, fine. If the shoe company forces out other brands and then consumers want those other brands, they will go to another store. The shoe company will either start selling those other brands again or go out of business. Either way, the free market will sort it out. The government did not need to intervene. And that Vaughn's grocery store case, that case where two stores wanted to merge into one, you know, he looks at that universe and he says, yes, sometimes mergers are bad for competition. You know, if, say, two firms merge and get 100% of the market... That's clearly definitely bad. And and in fact, you know, he steps back and he looks and he, he finds this threshold that's way below that. He says it may be reasonable to block mergers where the new firm would have more than 40 percent of the market. But that Vons grocery store case in L.A., Vons would have had seven and a half percent of the Los Angeles grocery store market. He looks at that and he says, clearly, that's not bad for competition. Clearly, we can let that happen. Also, that Utah pie case where the company said it was the victim of a price war but kept selling pies at a profit, Bork looked back at that case and wrote, There is no economic theory worthy of the name that could find an injury to competition on the facts of the case. Defendants were convicted not of injuring competition, but quite simply of competing. Bork's big argument in the book was this. The point of antitrust is to encourage competition. Everybody agrees. But... Encouraging competition doesn't mean protecting David against Goliath. You know, if Goliath comes along and makes a more pleasant grocery store or sells a cheaper frozen pie, then Goliath should win and David should lose. That is what competition means. The Supreme Court, in Bork's view, was not encouraging competition. It was protecting companies like the Utah Pie Company that didn't want to compete. The court was using antitrust law to make competition itself illegal. That is the paradox. Antitrust, the law that is supposed to help competition, was actually harming competition. And Bork, in this book, not only pointed out these problems, he also argued for a solution. The key, he said, was to stop focusing on competitors, on, you know, David and the other David and Goliath. Instead, Bork said, we should focus on protecting consumers. 
So, you know, straight up price fixing when a bunch of companies get together and decide not to compete on price. That is definitely bad for consumers. We should go after that. Also, you know, like those mergers, if a company buys up all the other companies in its business, like Standard Oil did, also pretty clearly bad for consumers. But Bork looks back at lots of other things the court found illegal. Price wars, manufacturers buying retailers, small mergers. And he says those are usually fine. If they lead to lower prices or better stuff, that's good for consumers. And if they don't, consumers will shop somewhere else. We can leave this to the free market. You can almost boil the book down into this one sentence that's in the final chapter. It says... The only goal that should guide the interpretation of the antitrust laws is the welfare of consumers. Consumer welfare was this really pretty different goal for antitrust law. Bork was saying, when a business wants to do something we're not so sure about, we've been focusing on how this will affect the other businesses. We should be focusing on how this will affect the consumer. After the book came out, consumer welfare became this viral phrase among conservative antitrust nerds. Did you have a sense that it would be impactful when you read it? Um, I think yes, but I probably could not have imagined how impactful it would be. Say more about that. Oh, because it became the Bible. In 1980, Ronald Reagan was elected president. He was very much on board with this free market gospel. And his administration adopted new, much more permissive, very borky merger guidelines built around this idea of consumer welfare. And the idea also transformed the way the Supreme Court itself thought about antitrust. The court cited the antitrust paradox the year after it came out. And then for decades, in one ruling after another after another, the court started reversing its earlier antitrust decisions and using the consumer welfare standard to legalize more and more kinds of business practices. There was an argument going on in the 70s, and, and Bork won. He won. Are we still living in, in Bork's world? Yes. This show runs on recurring donations from listeners just like you who've signed up to support the show on Patreon. Each hour-long episode we produce is the result of literally dozens of hours of work. Usually about 30 hours of source material has to be listened to, sifted, curated. I go through multiple rounds of editing and refining of the content before almost all of it is discarded and, and the final selection is made to produce the show. In short, a lot of effort goes into the production of the show because we care deeply about not just providing good ideas and getting them out into the world, but in finding the best versions of the best ideas we possibly can. Due to this high workload, we end up with a relatively low turnout of the show. You know, we only put out two episodes a week, which means we have less than half the opportunity to bring in ad revenue than if we were doing a live-to-tape, five-days-a-week show. And that's why direct support is so important. So if you get value out of the show and you want to support the work that makes it possible, the most important thing you can do is become a member on Patreon. Members get to listen to an ad-free version of the show, participate each week in a poll that helps decide which topics we're going to cover, and they receive bonus clips and commentary in separate members-only episodes. You can sign up at patreon.com slash bestofleft. That's p-a-t-r-e-o-n dot com slash bestofleft. And thanks so much for your support.
people don't understand. Um, I mean, there's there's been a lot of debate, uh, uh, you know, around uh, things like Google and Facebook. Should we nationalize them? I mean, how do we deal? We hear it in the context of uh, certain people being deplatformed or, or whatnot. But but there is a lot of sort of economic. There's a lot. There's 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 different silos. It seems to me that are are, are problematic with these things. Uh, but from a purely economic standpoint. Uh, Google and Facebook are highly problematic in terms of entrepreneurship, and and uh, explain that. Yes, one of the the principal problems uh, that we've we've seen now, essentially with uh, Google and Facebook, uh, is that the internet itself was meant to be open and free, uh, slightly anarchic. You know, uh, in the early days, you had DARPA; it was meant to withstand a nuclear bomb. The idea was that you would have a blog, I would have a web page and a blog. We might link to each other, and then we might link to someone else, and you know, you'd have this very rich uh, sort of uh, set of connections, and you know, it was very decentralized. Centralized. Uh, unfortunately, what's happened is that Google and Facebook essentially now mediate over half of all the internet traffic, and so uh, in that, that really uh, passed 50% in uh, 2014. And Tim Berners-Lee uh, created essentially, you know, the, the World Wide Web through his uh, standards, and you know, he's uh, a legend you know, in, in terms of. Uh, his involvement with the internet, and he thinks that the internet itself is dying. Uh, you know, he said that in, in various articles. And unfortunately, we've gone from sort of a very free and open, competitive internet, essentially, to one that's highly centralized for the benefit of a few players. And people often say, "Well, Google is just so much better at what it does," or "Facebook's just incredible at what it does." You know, how can you complain? And the products are free. And the the problem is that if you look at uh, the tech giants, you know, the the, the fangs. Uh, you know, so the Facebook, Amazon, Netflix, and Google, they've done, and, and including Microsoft, they've done, you know, over 430 acquisitions over the last 10 years. None of these have been challenged by regulators. And so what's ended up happening is that Google has been able to buy uh, DoubleClick. DoubleClick did display ads. Uh, Google did search ads. Uh, Facebook was able to buy WhatsApp, uh, was able to buy Instagram. So essentially, the the advertising duopoly, where basically Google and Facebook are the only ones capturing any additional ad dollars, this duopoly that exists was one that the regulators themselves gave the green light to. And so, you know, their, their dominance of the online world was in no way inev- inevitable and was essentially allowed to happen through very, very bad uh, antitrust uh, um, re- regulation or, or lack of regulation, rather. And I think that the big problem with these two two platforms is that broken markets create broken politics. And so to the extent that they're very powerful, they're able to then further control politics, further control regulators. And, you know, it, it's particularly troubling that under the Obama administration, no uh, company had as many visits to the White House as Google did. So, you know, Google was visiting uh, many times a week to the White House. Um, they were able to place their own former lawyers uh, at the FTC, uh, you know, in uh, Library of Congress. And so, uh, you know, the patent office. And so in the end, uh, the Internet ends up reflecting uh, the interests and the needs of Facebook and Google rather than of the consumer. Um, and beyond that, if you look at the sort of collapse in uh, royalties to uh, artists and to creators and the collapse in newspapers, 
what we've seen essentially is one of the greatest arbitrages of all time, which is that, uh, you know, it takes you time and energy to make this show. It takes writers time and energy to write. And what ends up happening is that basically Google and Facebook can monetize the content with, you know, without any need essentially to recompense the people who, who create these. And so uh, I think that it's very unhealthy, you know, if we think that uh, what we need is a lively ecosystem in, in the wild, you know, whether it's in uh, jungles or in forests or in the natural world, you know, basically we're ending up with a less diverse and a less rich uh, ecosystem online by having essentially uh, two dominant players completely control the economics. Uh, let's talk about the solutions, but for a moment, I want to take just a slight tangent here because, you know, and, and just, uh, go a little further into like, for instance, what Facebook, uh, has done, for instance, to, uh, journalism, right? Where you have, uh, we just had massive layoffs, uh, over the past month from Huffington Post, from BuzzFeed, uh, one or two others, uh, the, the, I, off the top of my head, I can't remember, but I know that what happened was, you know, uh, that, that a place like BuzzFeed, they basically gave up their website. I mean, it still exists, but in terms of a source of traffic and they just went all in on Facebook and, uh, <laughs> Facebook just decided we're going to do it a little bit differently. We're just not going to pay, uh, you in that same way. And it ends up, uh, destroying, um, a, a, you know, or, or severely debilitating, um, a major media outlet. What, what's interesting too, I mean, from your perspective, and th- this is, I think it's very helpful to see it in the context of economics only, but it's not just from a perspective of the consumer, right? I mean, cause what we're talking about is, um, is problematic for citizens because we have these policies that are, um, that, you know, the lack of journalism doesn't necessarily hurt me as a consumer per se. Right. I mean, it hurts me as a as a citizen. And we're talking about the oversized sort of political strength that a Google or a Facebook has because they've been able to amass such a, a, an amazing amount of money and market share in this space. Uh, absolutely. So, uh, you know, in this past month, uh, we've seen the new book has come out uh, called Zucked by Roger McNamee. <clears throat> it's a great book. I highly recommend your readers uh Read it. And, you know, the, the book that I've written uh, with my co-writer, uh, The Myth of Capitalism, is very much on the sort of economic side and antitrust. What's very interesting is that sort of McNamee looks very much at the danger to democracy and the danger to the body politic that comes from uh, sort of Facebook and, and Google, where, you know, you, you have uh, essentially these are sort of uh, attention magnets. Uh, they know almost everything about the people who uh, see them and, and view them. Um, and they serve up essentially uh, ads and information that's not necessarily true, not necessarily verified or good. Um, and the algorithms that promote content tend to promote the uh, wildest and you know most uh, sort of engaging content, whether it's true or not. And, you know, I think that that that's not a, a price problem. It's not an economic problem, but it certainly isn't a, a tremendous democratic problem. Um, and I think that the, the other uh, big problem here is that, like, you know, I, I point out in the book that they they, they do offer their own content. 
Um, yet they're like platforms. So, you know, they have no responsibility what's on their site. They're just a platform. And yet at the same time, you know, Facebook and Google both pay for an enormous amount of actual real content, you know, YouTube studios and so on. So they have the best of all worlds, which is that they're not responsible for any of the stuff that goes up on the platform. Yet at the same time, they're very happy to pay to create content to engage people. Um, you know, and you and I, for example, you know, if, if we started uh, to put out content, we, we would be content creators. We would be responsible for our content. Uh, you know, we, we couldn't just claim to be platforms. So they, they have it both ways uh, when it comes to that. Um, and and I know that there's an analogy in what we can do to uh, sort of address the problems in, in the tech world as maybe also, you know, when it comes to hospitals and, and, and uh, other industries, cable, airlines, et cetera. But specifically, like how – because I think there's a lack of imagination of like how you would deal with specifically like a Facebook and a Google um, if you were to apply a, a, a different concept than we've had in this country really since, um, uh, since, since Bork, I guess, in the eighties, um, to antitrust when, when, when looking at these companies, like, like from a, from a, from a practical standpoint, what would you do with a Facebook or a Google, broadly speaking, to uh, diminish their uh, their their monopoly, their monopolistic, I guess, hold on the internet. So I think that so in the the last uh, chapter of the the book, the myth of capitalism, uh, we offer some specific solutions, and those do apply to Facebook and Google, and, and they they apply to all industries. But for example, I, I mentioned that uh, they, there were a few acquisitions that should never have gone through. Um, I think the first step, what we have to do is to, one is prevent further um, acquisitions that are, are bad and anti-competitive. Uh, and then secondly, undo any previous acquisitions that have been anti-competitive. And I think that if you look at whether it's DoubleClick or AdMob, whether it's Instagram or WhatsApp, these are acquisitions that are blatantly anti-competitive and that these companies should be broken up and it would not be the end of the world. Uh, you know, companies spin off units all the time. Standard Oil was broken up. AT&T was broken right. up. It's no, no surprise, by the way, that the Internet revolution itself uh, happened basically about 10 years after AT&T was broken up. You know, you ended up with competition. You ended up with innovation. And uh, I think that if we did that to the Internet giants – uh, the world would be a much better place. Senator Elizabeth Warren is one of our heroes, and George Zornick just interviewed her for The Nation. He's the magazine's Washington editor. George, welcome back. Hey, thanks for having me back. Monopoly power in America today, the facts are pretty stark. Remind us about that. Yeah, so what's happened at, at the very uh, top of many different um, sectors in the economy is that there's been this huge um, coagulation, I guess, where, where all the market power is accumulated by one or two players. So there's really only four airlines that, that control about 80% of the domestic airline seats. There's five health insurance companies that control 80% of that market. Same is true in things like beef or even uh, beer. There's really just two big beer giants that sell 70% of everything that we drink in this in the country. So, Two beer companies control all the beer in America? What about all those craft beers on the supermarket aisle? 
Yeah, that's been such a great case study in how monopoly power functions because you did actually have this this explosion of independent craft breweries for just a few years there. And people still think like when they go to the supermarket, oh, I'm I'm not drinking, you know, I'm not going to buy that case of Bud. I'm I've got this great craft beer that I really like. Uh, I would encourage people next time to look on the label because what you'll probably find is that InBev, which is um, what Anheuser-Busch became, this huge, huge beer conglomerate, has actually bought up a lot of these very small craft breweries. So if people want to track monopoly power in real time, just just take a look at the label of the craft beer you may buy this weekend. And, and I think it's likely you'll find out that it's actually uh, now being uh, produced by a lar- very large corporation. Now, you asked Elizabeth Warren how she explains to the public why exactly why it's a bad thing that 80% of domestic airline seats are controlled by four airlines. What does she say about how to explain the problem? You know, it's funny because she kind of takes um, some of the rhetoric you often hear from conservatives about the free market and poses the question of how free is a market really if you have two or three companies that are controlling 80% of it. So when that's the case, these these companies are able to um, keep a lot of innovators and and small business uh, people in that sector out of the field. I mean, if you have that substantial of a share of of that market, you you also probably control a lot of the inputs and outputs. You know, the vendors and the and the supply chains that are needed for that. So you can you can really use that to suffocate and strangle anyone trying to enter that particular sector. So she kind of says, you know, oh, I'm, I'm in a sense a, a free market person. I think markets should be open and free and fair, and you should have an opportunity to compete in a market where, you know, there's this one mega super giant that can't just, you know, run you off the reservation as, as, as soon as you try to launch your business. And how much of the problem of monopoly power in America today does she blame on Trump? You know, not much. I, I, in a sense, she surely has been helping lead the charge in the Senate against some of the nominees that Trump has been putting forward to the Federal Trade Commission and, and antitrust division at, at DOJ and things like that. But, you know, she's made very clear that this is essentially a bipartisan problem. And in fact, she started talking about this back in uh, the summer of, of 2016, um, you know, during the Obama era. Um, you had mergers and acquisitions actually reached an all-time high. I believe it was $4.7 trillion in, in mergers and acquisitions in, in 2015. Um, you know, George W. Bush set a record for bringing the fewest um, antitrust cases to trial, his DOJ, and Obama only barely cleared um, that bar. I, I think Bush brought in the high 50s number of cases and Obama was in the high 60s. You know, even back to Bill Clinton, who was pretty business friendly, he he brought uh, well into the I think almost 200 antitrust cases to trial. So it's been sort of this bipartisan, soft bipartisan consensus that antitrust enforcement uh, doesn't really matter, and that's something that Warren is challenging now under Trump, surely, but but I have no doubt would be um, challenging the same under under President Hillary Clinton or or anyone else uh, in office. And one of her big points in her conversation with you is that the problem 
is not just economic concentration and the absence of freedom to compete. There's also a political dimension of this. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, it, it creates kind of a doom loop in the political system when you have a company that is just massive. And so it has a massive amount of economic power, which, of course, we know um, economic power translates pretty directly into political power uh, in the U.S. system these days. And so to protect its interests, to keep the federal government from forcibly making this this company smaller or reducing its market share, it can deploy that that political power that it has. It can use that political power in other ways to fight off regulations, um, to increase in, in a myriad of different ways its its share of the market. And then, of course, when that happens, the company gets even bigger, and then it has even more political power. And so, it, it like I say, it creates this doom loop where the companies keep getting bigger and bigger and bigger, and, and the political system is uh, less and less able to address that problem. And the massive companies that dominate the landscape in America now are not just the airline companies, the drugstore chains, the health insurance giants. We also have Google we have Facebook. They are, they are new kinds of companies. What does Elizabeth Warren say about the kind of problems that Google and Facebook pose? Yeah, you know, she had some really interesting things to say about that. Um, in, the, in the one sense, you know, very directly, she compared them to kind of the oil and sugar railroad trusts of the 19th century that we think of, of the Roosevelt coming in and busting up. But one way that uh, she noted tech companies are are different than that, and in a way more powerful, just looking beyond the market share comparisons, is that uh, those companies like Facebook um, and Google control data. And data is one of the most valuable commodities um, in the economy today. And so when you control that massive level of data, you can use it to influence how people um, shop, how they vote um, and things like that. So, if if you believe that information is power, that that underscores um, the case that we should really, really be looking at these just two or three companies that control absolutely mind-boggling amounts of data about just about every kind of behavior you can think of of, of the American public. You mentioned. Teddy Roosevelt, the trust buster of the early 20th century. Does Elizabeth Warren think the government today has the power to fight monopolies? Yeah, and in fact, it's the case that a lot of those laws are still on the books. So antitrust regulators, it's not a situation where, oh, Congress needs to, you know, pass this law in many cases, and thus that will help um, the president break up big companies. A lot of these laws are, are there for antitrust regulators to use, but what Senator Warren said was that they just simply lack the will. So the government right now could actually go in and forcibly break up some of these big companies, and they just choose not to do it. And what's missing is kind of the political will, which I think is exactly what Senator Warren and a lot of the other kind of activists and writers who have been working on this issue are trying to build right now.
We've just heard clips today, starting with a video from Bernie Sanders' YouTube channel breaking down the history of how Amazon got so big. Ear to the Pavement explained in more detail the tax avoidance and government subsidies Amazon has used to get ahead. Why is this happening explained how Amazon wants to tap every funding stream it can and become the infrastructure for the entire economy. Pitchfork Economics explained the concept of monopsony. Planet Money laid out how Robert Bork changed the way we think about antitrust enforcement. The Majority Report spoke with Jonathan Tepper about monopolies and the death of competition. And finally, we just heard Start Making Sense discussing Elizabeth Warren's stance on monopoly power and her plan to take it on. Members will be getting a bonus episode with more conversation on monopolies, and a listener has opened up the taboo topic of how we think about population and family planning in light of the environment, so we'll be talking about that as well. To hear that and all of our bonus content, sign up as a full member on Patreon at the $6 level, though if that's too steep for you, consider getting the show ad-free for only 2 bucks a month, and remember that our weekly poll to help choose the topics we cover each week is free to everyone. You can simply follow Follow the show on Patreon, no financials involved, and take part in the poll each weekend. Visit patreon.com slash bestofleft for all the details. Of course, you can find that link in the show notes on the device you're using to listen. And now, we'll hear from you. Hello, Jay. This is Franklin, and I've listened to your episode number 1257. I just heard your response to uh, a caller, Grant talking about the position or the role that race and gender might have to play in who you would support as a candidate. And I am uh, speaking as a black male, have to respond immediately. I haven't thought this through a whole lot, but I have to say that I'm not sure, I don't want to make assumptions about what his race is, but I would say as a, as a black man that uh, I disagree uh, a lot with what he said, that I think it's very important that we have uh, representation, that our government looks like our population in the sense of who is um, represented in terms of race and gender, and I think that's very important, but it's not as important as what the policies are, and in terms of the policies, that's what matters most to me. You know, Herman Cain, Ben Carson, both black men, who I would never support under any circumstances or vote for are two prime examples. So I think you're definitely on the right track. The policy is much more important than the race or gender. And I lean more toward where you came down, which is that the policy is the most important and given the choice of all things being equal. And I'm not sure what he meant by uh, his reference to the prioritization of being equal as somehow unimportant. But uh, the policies definitely definitely matter, and um, uh, so just wanted to throw my voice in as a person of color and person who definitely thinks that that policies are the most important thing, and that representation is important, but not as important as having policies that uh, support where progressivism needs to go, and not against the people like those of you know, Ben Carson or someone like that. Uh, thanks so much, Jay. You have a great show. Keep up the great work. 
Hey, Jay, this is Ariel, your member from Seattle, and I'm calling in response to Grant's voicemail about how basically ideas and policies should be the last thing we consider when picking candidates versus identity, putting that first. And I honestly just couldn't disagree more because if that's how we went, we would have had Vice President Sarah Palin. And I think we really do need to prioritize ideas and policies and also remember that we want long-term change in representation and not one-off. So incompetence hurts all of us. So if, for instance, we had all voted for John McCain and Sarah Palin just to get a woman at such a high office, that incompetence would have set us back for decades. Like, I'd love to have a woman vice president or a woman president but it has to be someone who is worthy and capable of doing the job, both for the time being and for there to be any hope of having another female president. So that's where I stand on that. Thanks so much. Bye, guys. Hi, Jay. How you doing? This is Jeff. I'm calling you from Charlotte. I was listening to your most recent episode that you had regarding uh, minorities running for political office and your expectations of them. And also you had a caller who called in who had a contrary view, and it's okay to have a contrary view. But something that can unify the two of you is to understand that your statement and his statement both prove the fact that there's no such thing as a colorblind society. It's okay, and there's nothing wrong with seeing color, but there's a problem with judging color. And that's one major difference that I did notice. Something that you might want to be careful of is that when you make a statement saying that when you see a person of color running for an office, you have a stronger view or you have more faith that they will get the job done, sometimes you are running into a trap in which you're now expecting more from that minority and they're judged at a higher rate than what a non-minority would. So I'm just mentioning that, just be careful. It seems like you, you might not be doing it, but that's the impression that you're giving out. Thank you. I enjoy your show. Enjoy. Hi, Jay. This is Nathan Heavenstone from Long from New York. I haven't called in a really long time, so hello. I am calling in response to Grant. First things first, I just want to say that, no, I don't think you're racist, but, I mean, I'm a white guy. I don't really have the necessary qualifications to make that, render that judgment, I feel. So keep that caveat in mind. The other thing I just want to say is in terms of, however, what he was saying about how important race is, I actually kind of agree with him to a point, to, to a bit of a point. I think it is notable. I still think it's very notable that in 2016, Hillary Clinton won the Southern black vote. And I think she won the black vote overall. I can't remember. And I'm not saying black people didn't vote for Bernie Sanders. They did. But a majority turned out for Hillary Clinton. And there has to be a reason why. I am honestly considering and i may get called out for this which would be fair but i'm honestly considering 
seeing how black people vote to decide who I'm going to vote for in the Democratic primaries. And the reason for that is because I think the candidate who's going to be good for black people is probably the candidate who's going to be best for this country right now. Because we are dealing with a system of white supremacy that needs to be torn down. And we don't do that if we don't make race an important issue upon which we base our decision to vote. I'm not saying that it has to be the most important. That I don't necessarily agree with because there are a lot of other things, economically speaking, that we have to tear down. And that's why Bernie Sanders' campaign issues are very, very good. I think we also have to allow Kamala Harris to move to the left. And in some cases, it does seem like she's at least she at least wants to be seen doing that, which is not actually a bad thing. Right. It's not a terrible thing. So that's all I want to say is just I like I, I don't agree with him 100 percent, but I do kind of get where he's coming from. I do agree with him to a point about like how important race is to this factor to this election. And I guess the only other thing I'd want to say is if you're going to do another show highlighting candidates, you did. It did feel a bit unfair to Kamala Harris. I will say I don't think it was it may not even have been deliberate on your part. I kind of feel like your uh, your explanation for that works. Like I, I like I think that's a legit explanation. But on the flip side, I wonder had you looked a little harder if you could have found a little more parody there. I don't know. Maybe you could do for a second round of episode a second episode on the subject or whatever. But yeah, so that's really it. Thanks. Bye. Hi, this is Whitney from Seattle again, and I'm calling in response to Grant's message. Things we agree on, uh, voting based on race or some other minority identity is a political act and one that is important and should be considered in order to fight the oppressive status quo. I also agree, Jay, that you kind of doubled down with your actions and it kind of disappointed me. And basically, the impact of your choice could have been racist, even if that wasn't your intent and even if you are not racist. But it didn't seem like you were really entertaining that possibility, and I think that it would have been a great opportunity to do so. So that kind of disappointed me. Then we get into like stuff I'm not quite sure about what Grant was saying. I think from what I'm hearing from him in the most charitable form is that the order of priority matters. So who gets the first points? I think back to the 2016 election and the superdelegates declaring for Clinton early, and the result meant that if you searched for the delegate count on the Democratic side, she was winning from basically the very beginning. We're talking about percentages in this conversation about, you know, how would we decide between different candidates. But I think Grant may also be getting at the order of consideration as being important. So I think Grant would award identity points first and it is like a whole bunch of superdelegates showed up for those brown candidates in his own internal race for the nomination. And he makes that choice as a political act. I found the message actually rather convicting and a useful way to flip my thought process, being conscientious about which alignment points I award first as a political act. Additionally, there's an opportunity cost this year, especially. Um, we have a very full field, and most of us are not going to have the time, energy, or even the depth of background knowledge to fully investigate each candidate. So another charitable way to put what Grant is just Describing also is like adding all the brown candidates to the research list first and then adding others as 
he has time or hears things, which I would be fine with um, as a way to delegate those resources of time and energy. My concern about Grant mostly is his mention of bombings and violent misogyny. I think that there should be a minimum criteria for all candidates that should apply equally and that harm reduction should be a part of that minimum criteria. It makes me wonder a little bit from Grant, uh, how far does this go and does it cross the aisle? Would you vote for Ben Carson or Bobby Jindal over a white Democrat that uh, has views that are more aligned with yours? Anyway, talk to you later. Bye. Thanks for listening, everyone. Thanks to our production assistant, Joel McKean, and the volunteers who helped gather clips to make this show possible. Thanks to Amanda Hoffman for all of her work on our social media outlets and activism segments. And thanks to all those who called into the voicemail line. If you'd like to leave a comment or question of your own to be played on the show, you can simply record a message at 202-999-3991. Now, as you can imagine... There are more messages on this topic. I plan to uh, be doling those out over the next episode or two. So just a first couple of responses to some of the people we heard. And then we also have more comments that came in via email or, or comment sections or whatever. So first, Jeff, who commented on seeing color but not judging people based on it. I I completely agree with what he was saying. And just a quick reminder that I I sort of touched on this topic, but it was a while ago. You know, this conversation has been stretched out a bit. So it could have been a month ago or more. And I told this story about a caller who called into a different show. And I heard him have a conversation with the host probably in about 2010 when the tide was turning and, and a lot of progressives were beginning to have some frustrations and, and disappointments with Obama at the time. And and this person called in and said, hey, do you think that we gave him too much credit or, or, or we expected more out of him because he was black? We expected him to be more progressive. We expected him to be more radical, even though he never really gave us any reason to think that that would be the case. But the fact that he was black made us think like, well, come on. He's black, of course. Of course he's going to be you know, more progressive than he's letting on. And that resonated with me at the time. And I, I think that I fell into that trap, not you know, thinking uh, things are going to be better than it even sounds like they're going to be. I put more hope in them because of that. And so that's exactly what Jeff is saying we shouldn't do. And, and, and so that story from you know, almost 10 years ago now is the thing that's in my head that, that is the time that I learned that lesson when that lesson uh, was it resonated and, and clicked into place for me. Oh, right. I did do that. And it obviously didn't work out. I shouldn't do that again. Now, second uh, response to Whitney, who had some interesting ideas on, I, I think, you know, trying to take what Grant was saying and, and put it into just slightly different terms and, and argue for ways to counterbalance inherent bias. And so what she concluded on was that maybe if you award in, in this sort of internal uh, primary race, as you judge for yourself who you're going to support, if you award identity points first in that race and then look to policies, sort of the way Grant was suggesting, then that can help balance out bias. And I don't think this makes sense. Like, it's not that I agree with it or disagree with it, think it's right or wrong. I just think it actually doesn't make sense because the way 
the way she framed it, 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 it was like arguing that if you add three plus two, you'll come to a different conclusion than if you add two plus three. Awarding points, you know, judging different aspects of a person in a different chronological order shouldn't make any difference whatsoever. I mean, I think what she's driving at is the main conversation we've been having, which is whether you break it down as a percentage or whatever, how do you weight the importance of identity compared to other aspects? Because when you ultimately decide you're going to support a candidate, it's going to be based on the totality of who they are and what they support. But figuring out who they are first and what they support second or the reverse shouldn't matter at all. It's As I said, it's like doing a math problem backwards when you get the same answer either way. Uh, and now finally, just a couple more messages that came in via email or, or comment section. Paul writes, listening to Grant... I started having flashbacks to arguments from 2016 with Trump supporters in which I considered their tribalist support of an extremely incompetent candidate for a real job with real consequences a revelation of their status as members of a privileged, mostly safe group who could ride out any ill effects or ill-considered decisions. Grant's comments were the looking-glass version of that. And I, yeah, I mean, I sort of get what he means. It's it's basically the opposite of white supremacy. So it's like a simplified version. If you think that white supremacists are bad, then you think, well, okay, I'll just do exactly the opposite of what a white supremacist would do, and I'll get the opposite result. I would argue that's not really how it works. And, and piling on to this uh, topic, Brian commented, except he's coming from a different perspective. He's supporting Grant, saying that his point is very solid. Not that you're a racist, but that your approach systematically supports racism. Your comment about knowing nobody who approaches the identity politics situation from Grant's perspective, that it was previously unthinkable to you, is a sign of your privilege. You do know people with purist approaches to identity politics, but they're on the other side. They're the white supremacists who will vote for any white person before they vote for a person of color. They are the misogynists who will vote for any cisgender male before they vote for a woman. Bigots are very strongly represented in this approach, so you do know people who think that way. To which I would respond, I don't think that's really hitting the point. You know, I said I'd never heard of anyone with Grant's perspective, meaning someone with progressive ideas, who wants progressive policies, who wants good things to happen for people of color and women, to hold Grant's perspective. So to say, no, there are plenty of people like that, they're white supremacists and misogynists, and to not recognize that as a sign of my privilege, I think I just, if, if by the same you mean the opposite, then okay, but I meant the same. I meant actually the same, not as uh, as Paul said, the looking glass version of it. I mean, sure, if I had thought about people being the exact opposite, then I probably would have come to that same conclusion. Um, but as I said, I don't think that's a good way to go about it. Um, actually, Brian continues and says that Grant is reappropriating the bigoted approach, a lot like gays and blacks reclaim language but as a methodology to express his political power. So on that note, I'll just get into the details of why I think this is wrong. The opposite of racism and sexism is not reverse racism and reverse sexism. 
racism and sexism are oppression. And the opposite of oppression is not reverse oppression. It's justice. So to look at what a white supremacist does or a misogynist does and just do the opposite is not the path to justice. I can understand why it might seem that way, or if you don't really think about it at all, it sounds like it makes sense, but that is not how it works. He continues, oh yes, it matters a lot. It can't be the last thing you look at. If it is, you're a racist, because you will be able to find something about them, about anyone, that will color your reasoning. Ultimately, we can't be impartial. Eventually, our own bias will enter into the calculus, usually in a way we don't recognize. Grant has found a way out of this, and it's pretty easy to implement. If you're a white guy and you're trying to fight for justice and racial empowerment, you could do much worse by looking at policy first. So here's how I interpret what uh, what Brian is is getting at with this. And you you guys know how much I love analogies, as imperfect as they always are. And I don't know why this sprang to mind. I haven't been bowling in quite a while, but the idea of bowling came to mind. So in bowling, you're throwing the ball down the lane. You're trying to hit as many pins as possible. Uh, hitting as many pins, getting a high score, that means electing a really great candidate with uh, lots of great policies. And your your systemic bias is your skill level. It's your lack of skill. No one is naturally good at bowling. You got to practice if you want to be good at bowling. So the way this suggestion sounds to me is it's like, okay, so there's two ways to knock down as many pens as you can. One is you practice, you try hard, you work at getting better, you understand the fundamentals, and you apply all your knowledge to build on your skills to get better at bowling, and you knock down more pens. The other way is you say, can we just put up some of those gutter bumper things, and then I don't have to try to get good, and I'll just throw the ball wildly, but I'll knock down more pens if the bumpers are there than if they weren't there considering the fact that I don't plan on trying to use any skill of any kind. Now, if you want me to argue that you're going to end up with a better outcome putting up the bumpers, the bumpers being, okay, I'm, I'll, I'll, I'll use the Democratic Party as a baseline. Let's assume that Grant and Brian aren't going to go vote for Herman Cain or Sarah Palin. So, so the Democratic Party is the baseline, and then as much identity politics as I can get in, person of color, woman, disabled, gay, whatever, go for that first. That's like putting up the bumpers. Just, I don't, I don't want to have to think. I don't want to talk about policies. I'll, I'll just recognize that I'm so biased, meaning I'm so bad at bowling, that I'm better off throwing wildly and just doing whatever the opposite of what a white supremacist would do. I, I, I'll vote for a Democrat and I'll put up the bumpers and say, just give me a brown person or just give me a woman or a brown woman <laughs> or whatever. And then I don't have to think at all, meaning I don't have to try. I don't have to use my intellect. I don't have to use my judgment. I don't have to critique my own bias and try to overcome it thoughtfully. I can just recognize the bias is there, give up and continue to throw wildly, but the bumpers will keep me, you know, basically in bounds and things will be better because of that. Look, yeah, I mean, you'll be better than if you don't have the bumpers there and you keep throwing wildly. But uh, the way to get good and the way to pursue justice, the way to 
counteract your bias in the most effective way possible is to be thoughtful, is to understand your bias, is to consciously work to counteract it, but in a thoughtful way to, to uh, you know, look at all of the aspects of all of the candidates and find the one who is going to do the best job of counteracting the systems of bias that exist, that perpetuate themselves throughout not just your life, but systemically through everyone's life. That's how we overcome this stuff. So the, the, the idea of, no, there's just like this one easy thing you can do to overcome your own bias. It's, you know, it's, it's like clicking on one of those ads. We found this one weird trick to help you overcome your bias. It doesn't work that way. It's never going to work that way. And at the very least, it is never going to work as well as putting in the real effort, doing the real work to fight white supremacy and misogyny. It just isn't. As always, keep the comments coming in at 202-999-3991 if you have thoughts on this or anything else. That is going to be it for today. Thanks to everyone for listening. Thanks to those who support the show by becoming a member or making donations of any size at patreon.com slash bestofleft. That is absolutely how the program survives. Of course, everyone can support the show just by telling everyone you know about it and leaving us glowing reviews on Apple Podcasts and Facebook to help others find the show. For details on the show itself, including links to all of the sources and music used in this and every episode, all that information can always be found in the show notes on the blog and likely right on the device you're using to listen. So coming to you from far outside the conventional wisdom of Washington, D.C., my name is Jay, and this has been the Best of the Left podcast, coming to you every Tuesday and Friday, thanks entirely to the members and donors to the show from bestoftheleft.com. Thank you.